Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. Right now, I wanted to let you know that because it's Labor Day, I took the day off. I'm resting from my labors. And we have someone that used to preach for us pretty regularly, my husband. He used to be Echo Church pastor here back in the day. We're going back. And now, through a series of events, I'm the pastor. But we're so excited to have Steve preach here today, doing a transition between, uh, a little in between our two series. But during this time, we're going to switch over the stage, and we're going to let our Echo kids head back to class, those of you in the elementary class. And if you guys want to take a minute to just say hello to someone around you, um, we'd love to see you. I was used to find it humorous. It was like when the pastor was taking a Sunday off, it's like, you know, it's like minor league Sunday, and when major holidays would come around, you're like, oh, that's what they think of that person because then they're allowed to speak on Labor Day weekend, and now it is me, so I have arrived. Um, it's not even that, but also that uh, Pastor Kelly has dictated what I have to talk about today, too, so I feel doubled down, but we'll see how I arrive at this. So because of that, I think I should present to you, uh, you know, if I think if you look online, it has, but what the... The title of the working title of my message this morning, which is, uh, Why Am I Angry? Or Why Is the Carpool Line the Bane of My Existence? So some of you know me, and maybe if you've been here for a long time at Echo, you know me as like trained theologian Steve. In my other life, because I keep two lives, the separate life, I am finance Steve, so I have these two distinct backgrounds, and I feel that my call is to help intertwine them together so that we can all know more about ourselves and the world in which we live, which is why I landed on this message today. And I'll be honest, is that so much of preaching is just an act of self-therapy anyway, so as I work this out, you can just learn more about me and who I am and what makes me tick. So... Really, this is about me working out my idiosyncrasies in front of the church, so thanks for the journey. I guess I should start off with this, is that our lives, our family lives, had a little bit of change this summer because our daughter got her driver's license. And that's a good thing because in May, I celebrated what I thought was a personal milestone, which was I would no longer have to navigate the carpool line at her high school. I was like, this is a victory of mammoth proportion because, you know, I am the one who did morning carpool and Kelly would take afternoon just as it worked out. And it was just always the bane of my existence. But then this week, because we are navigating and I think I've got, you know, basically a, a picture of you know, what is it, Garrett? It's like the Apple Maps view of my family at any time. You know, so Kaylin's in one place, and then Kelly's here, but then sometimes she's out having coffee with people in the church. And basically, I put myself down there, which really I tried to center me at the Hard Rock Casino, because that's usually where I spend late mornings and early afternoons and late evenings. And 
not really at all, but it was just, you know, I had this like mental image of like, if you did find my friends, where our family was. So when you're taking those people who have to be in different places and are trying to split time between vehicles, it's always this act of logistics. So uh, I was traveling this week for work. So then they have the car situation. I get back and Kaylin feels like, you know, now she's back to being second tier. So we were like, look, Friday, I'm taking you to the carpool line. I will tell those of you all who have not lived through it in a while or who have never had the privilege to live through it is that the carpool line is horrible, but most horrible at the beginning of a school year. Because at the beginning of a school year, there's so many people in a transitory period and they're trying to figure out how things work. But mind you, the carpool line is not nearly as difficult as some believe it to be. So I have a picture here, and you can see the football field. This is the practice football field to the left. The arrow is the driveway going. It goes uphill, and you can see there's a circle right there, and that is the drop-off. They actually now, because there used to be a side street to the right, Ruth Avenue, if you can see right there, that used to be open, and for years I was like, why don't they just close that entrance off because it is by other accounts, just a dead-end street, a single-lane road, and whoever lives there, and actually we have friends who live there, their lives in the morning, they just are like, we sit on the porch with our coffee and watch the crazy carpool. So now they've closed it out, so the carpool line is even easier, because all you have to do is go up and around the circle and back out. Up, around the circle, and back out. But you see, the X where I'll have here, is where you should pull all the way through. Because if you stop before the X, what happens? There's a long backup of cars, right? So if you can just follow through, if there's space, you follow to the X and everybody flows through, logic prevails and everybody's child gets there in an expedient manner. But in the first week of of, of school, it is a Lord of the Flies situation to where... And you can see, Garrett, next slide. This is where everybody parked, and I'm not even joking, is like, I was laughing on Friday and laughing with the tedious anger in my voice because people were like, you know what, I'm going to stop at the end of the circle, effectively blocking off the entire traffic flow because, you know what, my kid needs to be here at this moment, and this is where it's at. So it was funny, there was only when I pulled in, because I always tell Kaylin, like, we got to get out early, because I can't fight the real crazies. Real crazies show up at 740, and then it is just January 6th in Washington, D.C. So where you have to be is in the right place, at the right time. We are there, but everybody's letting their kids off, and it is the, the, the height of chaos. And this is at the point where I express my rage and vocal and my daughter's sighs aloud, which I realize that at this point of the sigh, that I have pushed a point where she says, you are angry, and you should not be. Now, what do I do with all this? Why do I have problems with this? First, financially, is that it is an issue of resource allocation. Do you understand this concept of resource allocation, the assignment of available resources to various uses? This would be, a, this is, would be how we manage our individual lives, right? I only have so much in the tank, so much I can give. I take one, I go to this. Resource allocation is something that you and I choose to do everything, but we must consider the resources, right? And there are two things I want to point about resources. Number one, resources are finite, 
Okay, Re there are not unlimited resources. This is one of the reasons that so many people are into ecological causes because they're like, look, we get one world, there's no do-overs, so we need to be careful because this is the only one we get, we're gonna use it, we better use it well, right? Resources are finite. But then the second thing that many of us don't consider is that resources are intended to be shared, right? And, and by the way, I'm, again, I'll get into the biblical side of this in a little bit, but I think this is not a Christian principle. I think it's something that is bigger about the world in which we live, regardless of what belief system you ascribe to. This idea that, look, we aren't in this alone, and because of that, I must be mindful of what is going on with other people. Now, the biblical term would be stewardship. And by the way, I introduced this, and I was talking to a certain unnamed person in the room before who said, ah, oh, preaching on, on giving this morning. And really, I'm not talking about that at all. But when you get into churchy situations, stewardship always means like, man, don't make Steve scream don't make Steve shout, turn your pockets inside out. We're taking up an offering. And by the way, uh, stewardship as a word does not appear in the Bible. So when you do your Bible gateway search online to find stewardship and say, oh, that's a very churchy thing, the word itself doesn't appear in the Bible. But we'll talk here this morning how it's critical. I can get back to, you know, uh, the bane of my existence, the carpal line, but I would offer from a from, from a financial standpoint, resource allocation, from a biblical standpoint of stewardship, my anger is derived that my finite resource that should be shared is time. And if you can just get through the carpool as God intended you to do, you would save your time, my time, your kids' times. It's what we would call win-win-win, correct? But they don't do it. So I would offer, when my daughter is watching this again online, because I said, look, this is my whole spiel to start this, and she's back teaching the kids, because she's a better Christian than I am today, is she, I will say this to you, Kaylin. My anger is righteous and justified, because the Lord wants the carpool line to work well. Amen. Amen. Now, I am going to land on this concept of stewardship this morning as we're talking about a, fine bit, a, a foundational biblical principle that I'm hoping we see. Again, where it doesn't, the word itself doesn't appear in the Bible, we see it throughout Scripture. And it's something important that you and I need to realize as we live our Christian lives. So I want to start with this concept of stewardship. And I'm going to use a working definition. I could go all Merriam-Webster right here, but I kind of dropped in, edited, and you know, the dictionary says this. I don't even know what the dictionary itself says. It's just what I tell it that it says. But a working definition for us today is to super, supervise, to manage, or to keep in order. Because this is what we who steward are called to do, what we are called to do. Now, the biblical basis of this the driving point to, to, that, that discusses stewardship, in my view, is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 24, the very first verse, which is a verse that we maybe have heard before, but it's trying to integrate this into how we actually live. So the Lord inspired the psalmist to write, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He made it all. Ergo, it is his. The earth is the Lord's. Now, the beautiful thing about 
you know, when we look at scripture, as we see that you and I, as the created beings, right? So if the earth and everything is in the Lord is the Lord's, if all this is God's, then we are God's. The beautiful thing is the beginning of the book, Genesis chapter 1, 1, we read that in the beginning God created. And biblically, we also know that you and I are created in the image of God. Therefore, we are image bearers of who he is. It's not necessarily that God has, you know, manual digits and knees and armpits. But more so that we embody who he is and are able to replicate that. So the beautiful thing I love about this, and by the way, in my doctoral dissertation, I wrote almost a whole chapter on all of this. But because God created, we are co-creators. We are allowed to make things Right? That is itself stewardship. Now, the only difference is God's making, when you read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, was all, in the Latin word, the theological term is ex nihilo, out of nothing. God is the only one who can make stuff with no stuff. He speaks and stuff comes to existence. If you're like, Steve, make me a house, you might be like, well, number one, that's a dumb request. But I would do my best to ascribe it. And by the way, you know, Rob, it's interesting. We talk about this, is that our fathers were handy. My dad actually made the house. Like we were talking to my mom last week. My dad made the house. And I'm like, I, I can paint a wall, right? It's this derivative of that. But even if you were like, I will make a house, it's not you're just like, house exists. And it happens. You need materials, which in an inflationary, I'll bring back my financial, the inflationary environment, Burke, on construction costs, it's making this ridiculous. However... The biggest difference between we plebes and the Lord God Almighty is that he can speak into existence and things happen. He can make things out of nothing. So we are blessed, but what we need to do in that difference is understand our mindfulness and humbleness that even though we have stuff, maybe you want an extremely talented person. If so, God bless you, Dylan. But even if that is you, right, you have limitations when compared to the Lord God Almighty. True? He makes out of nothing. We are gifted to be co-creators with him. But when we start to consider things as ours, and Susan was here this morning. I love Susan. It was like this perfect Finding Nemo callback because she loves the movie. And there's the birds that say, mine, 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 mine. It's this, it's, it's, it's this great scene. But it's the antithesis of that, friends. Nothing is ours. Nothing is ours. Nothing that you have is yours. You are merely called to steward, to supervise, to manage, to keep in order what God has created. Now, again, the, the issue is, is that we always take this issue and we extrapolate it into financial things. And that's how churches try to tend to frame this. But stewardship, is finances of our steward, the way we steward our possessions is just derivative of this concept, this idea. So I was thinking, like, what is the best thing I think I can use to illustrate that and here it's something that I've taken note of in recent uh, months that I'm just so excited about is that in the back room we have the children back there um, and some of you didn't even see it if you come in late like we, we hide the children to the side so that none of us have to deal with that but in our church right now uh, Kelly told me that we have 28 different kids who have come to kids class and attended at some different frequency right and Shante who is I was going to say magician, but that's not quite the, you know, like <laughs> sorceress, whatever the word is. But make sure that all of this stays in shape. And even when Kendra was doing it, like that 28 is way more, way more than we ever had. I remember when we started this kid and our kid was the, 
our kid was the youth program. It's like somebody hold the youth program, right? And now we have, and when Rob and Alicia started attending, like their kids are now like, have careers or in college. It's like, before there was a three-person kids program, and now there's 28 kids back here. And one of the most beautiful things I see is that we have different backgrounds of those kids. Some of those are bio kids. Some of those are adopted kids. Some of those are foster children. And it's not like we sit there and when we pull them in, we slap a label on them and view them differently, right? Like we don't qualify what kind of kid that we have, okay? However, we who parent and have had the privilege to do that, sometimes qualify that with all of the kids in our stead. We're like, well, that's, that, that's one of my kids, right? Very possessive my. But what others have taught me through the journey and what my wife and I are experiencing right now through the teenage years and what some of you can testify to which more so than I is that they are not possession. We who parent are called to steward kids and it's the toughest thing that we have to do. It's the most challenging thing because sometimes even for some of us, we're like, look, I have parental baggage and we're all in different places right here. But understand is that the singular purpose for which we exist is not connected to our DNA, our bloodline, our familial connections. And again, hard teaching. But the reason I want us to think about that as a thing is that it makes us approach everything in life differently. It makes us see through a lens of something that is greater than ourselves. Because Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's, everything in it. So when we try to take what we have and stake claim to it and try to somehow believe that our purposes for the resources that we've been given, which includes kids, right? When we try to claim them as our own above all others, what we're not doing is living in the umbrella of what God has intended. So, again, not to, you'll be like, wow, you know, I, Kelly shouldn't let Steve preach ever again because he's anti-kid, anti-family. It's not about that. It's us reframing this idea, friends, that all we are stewards, blessed by the Lord to do what needs to happen. So, the way that I pull this together is that what happens in the timeline of stewardship is that God resources, God resources us, active verb, provides us with things. We manage, results materialize. Now, before we move on, because I want to move on from that, just trying to make sure those results to materialize aren't always within the scope of what God desires it to be, right? Because sometimes people take resources, they use them, and they use them to their own devices, and the Lord isn't blessed, his kingdom isn't grown, his purpose isn't expanded as a result. Okay, sometimes things happen. Don't conflate this idea that just because somebody misuses resources that somehow God has left the process altogether. It's part of who he is. So instead of going through scripture and trying to say, here's stewardship and this is what it looks like, really I think we need to look, and this is what I love about the Bible, is that it gives us these opportunities to examine the failures. And what I want us to look really quickly is to figure out these opportunities when stewardship fails and to see the failures and to try to, through others' mistakes, try to cure that from our lives. So when stewardship fails... Three, three different issues, and the first time, the first one I want to say is that when stewardship fails is when our desire for others' resources 
consumes us, okay? So there are times where we want what other people have. And we see this in the Garden of Eden. And again, so we don't have to go through the entire text of Genesis chapter 3 and the preceding chapters, but we remember this idea, God creates Adam and Eve. He basically says, hey, in the garden, this seminal idea, Adam and Eve, you are stewards. I'm giving you a garden. Do your best. But what's interesting is God just has one single provision in the garden, right? And it's not like no Taco Tuesdays. It's something that's incredibly simple. It's like there is this tree. It is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. A singular confine of their stewardship. They could have gone crazy as far as anything they can do. They're like, we, you know, we need a path and shrubbery. We have all of these things lined up for what a good garden should be. God said, do me a favor, just one rule. Do not touch the tree. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. I am not going to argue the merits of Genesis 3 and what this means within how women and men act. At the end of the day, who ate the tree? Both of them. Don't fixate on that, but fixate on this provision of what good stewardship looks like. Why do they eat the tree? And the snake uses the power of persuasion to try to move them into this act. It is that here is something that God has. Here is something that is his. But boy, that's just as good as all this other stuff that you have. Our desire at times for wanting other people's stuff can consume us and lead us astray. Usually when we think of the Ten Commandments, we think of the big ones up front, right? Maybe you discard Sabbath because you're like, what's up with Sabbath? I don't even understand that one. Like, let's chuck four out the window. But we're looking at, okay, don't steal, you know, don't murder people. Like, hey, you know, I can keep these. My favorite part is at the end we get to, you know, that great biblical word of coveting, right? I always like covet. Like, that's, that was the benefit for me growing up in the church as I understood the term covet by the age of 10. Like, I, I, I couldn't find, you know, Pakistan on a globe, but I could say the word covet. And what is covet and covetousness? It is this desire to have what others have, right? Now, why is this a failure in stewardship? Because when we are looking to utilize resources, if we are obsessed with what other people have and what we do not, then that will derail us. I will say, and it's always tough because there's political partisanship that comes into this, but one of the things is we are spending more time as humans right now, maybe even specifically American humans, to talk about systems and privilege and coming into this. There's this idea that exists, however, is that we are looking at other people's resources. This is not to say, then, that there's a biblical perspective on this that I want to espouse right here, but what I really want to talk about is when we... Look at other people's resources and our desire from them causes our stewardship to be less effective than we have failed. And I think scripture teaches us that to do well, we need to not worry as much about what other people have. Second stewardship failure from scripture, our dissatisfaction with our own resources. I feel like this is tied into the first one, but it's a little bit different because if I'm looking at this first point that I want other people's resources, I can like what I have, but really want to also have what they have, right? There's a desire that's here, but too often we are dissatisfied with what the Lord God has given us. My favorite story about this is in the Old Testament with the people of God. You remember Moses 
who was the leader of God's people, got them out of Egypt, a bunch of miracles. They're in the wilderness, they're hanging out. And when they talk about the wilderness in this area between Egypt and southern you know, Palestine, Israel, where it is today, it says wilderness, but really it's glorified desert. Right? Some of us view wilderness as some sort of Paul Bunyan motif. No, this is straight up just horrible, arid place where they did not have the resources that they needed to survive. So what does the Lord God do? He's like, hey, I didn't bring you guys out in the desert just to die. Here is free food from heaven known as manna. It's this like bread-like material that everybody, you know, it's like magic bread. I don't know. Like it's sourdough from the heavens come down for God's people. And the funny thing about it was it collected all the time. And I do like the parenthetical story too because there's this idea of resources, right? Because this manna could have been everywhere. But the funny thing about manna is if you tried to accumulate it, God would be like, it's going to be bad the next day. So if you're like going to go out and you're like, I'm going to do my manna work in one day so I have six days of manna to chase that with, it would be like, it would be wasted by the end of the day. Like that shelf life on this like was, was worse than sourdough. You had to get that stuff in there, right? So it worked out that God was just saying, hey, don't accumulate this resource like you have enough. But what's funny is, is that in Numbers chapter 11, when God's people are complaining, and if you really read the Bible, there are so many instances of first world problems that we see in like the ancient first world problems. Like it's, it really makes me feel good about myself. We see that the rabble began, to crave, rabble began to crave other food, and they started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost? Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlics. It's very interesting because, you know, it's like the, the golden corral longing. Like, I don't know if any of you actually long for the golden corral. We can talk about that later. But maybe there's this thought. I do every once in a while. I'm not even going to lie. Every once in a while, I'm like, the golden corral, that's where it's at. But then I think of it, what it was in my mind from 25 years ago and not the actual existence of that, which is the same thing that the people of God are doing here. Like the, the wailing about the manna is their golden corral, which is Egypt. Like, do you like my metaphor time right there? I should have done a slide with that illustration, which would have been better than the parking, the carpool illustration. But it's this idea that they're like, remember how good the food was? And they conveniently forget to admit, oh, and we were in slavery, Right? The fish was free after we worked forever for free. Right? But we got free fish out of that deal, man. Slavery, not that bad. Free fish. It's insane to think about that, but that's what they did. Why, why did the Israelites feel that? Because they were looking at their resources and they're just saying, look, what we have is bad. Yeah, we're in the middle of a desert area. God is providing us free food, but man, I, I love me a filet, right? It, it, it's insane to think about that God's provision is there and they still find a reason to do it. But you and I do that within our stewardship. What we have to do is appreciate the resources that God has provided us. Again, that doesn't mean that we can't be ambitious or aspirational, but to, to, to reject what God has provided us just shows that we are being poor stewards. The last thing I want to highlight going to the New Testament, our dismissiveness of our mandate to steward. What I'm hoping that, and again, this is a topical sermon. Kelly, we talk about this. I love preaching through the Bible, but she's like, here's a topic, run with it. And I'm like, okay, I got to draw from a bunch of stuff to illustrate this. I'm hoping the point that you're seeing right here is that you and I as created beings are called to steward. They're not our possessions, they're God's possessions, okay? Sometimes what you and I do 
is we reject the mandate that God has given you and I to steward at all. And just a few weeks ago, Kelly was talking about Luke's version of the story. I tend to camp out in Matthew's version from Matthew chapter 25 of the parable of the talents. And maybe you're familiar with this story, is that Jesus tells this story of, of a ruler and three people, and he apportioned them different talents, which, were, which is money, which is resources, and he said, hey, take these, put them to work, I'll be back. So the first two, it's like, you know, it's the inverse of the three little pigs, I don't know how that works out. The first two, they do a bang-up job of it, they get the job done. The third person digs a hole, puts it there, and says, I'll wait till he gets back. And we read of the rage of the ruler when he comes back in Matthew 25. When the servant said, I know you're a hard man, harvesting where you haven't sown, gathering where you haven't scattered. So I was afraid. I went out, laid it in the ground, and boom, here it's back. And if you know the punchline to that parable, that guy is angry. He lives life in anger. And again, if you want to do a deconstruction of who Steve is as a person and Kelly and I have had this thing is that this is a parable of Jesus a teaching of Jesus that drives my life and what drives me to try to be the steward I need to be because what we see is that God has given you resources he is not concerned at the outcome per se okay so stick with me right here it wasn't the idea that the guy put it to work and was an abject failure at it it's like God you know I did this you know, I, I was just like, look, Bed Bath & Beyond is going all up on the stocks. I'm going all in on this one. Let's see what happens. Failed. No, the idea is that it was the squandering of the chance to be a steward. It's like, look, God has given you resources. What are you going to do with it? And the ruler comes back and she says, just don't do nothing. And again, maybe this is, I say that's the driving force of it. And it could just be Protestant work ethic that's been in my brain but there's this balance here that we as followers of jesus in the united states need to figure out is how are we stewarding the resources that god has given us to not steward is to deny the greatness of the creator god who has taken this little bit and handed it to you and just say hey do your best just do your best with this steward do well i've got to say then to counteract this as we're going through the scripture and Again, I can't hit everything about stewardship in the scripture, but I do want to talk about this. When stewardship succeeds, what does it look like when it succeeds? And again, maybe not the way that you would have envisioned this, but I always land on this in Matthew chapter 28. At this point, Jesus has lived his life. He was crucified. He had risen from the dead. And he was in his days after the resurrection, imparting his last and final words to the disciples. And what he says in Matthew's accounting of these last days, right before he ascends back into heaven, is known for us who are in Christianese as the Great Commission. You know, and again, we get back to the beginning. Is what does commission mean? It's like we are collectively on mission with God. Where Jesus' last words is like, look, this is what God has done. This is what the Lord, me, God incarnate, has done here. Now what's that next step? It's what comes next and what you make of it jesus's final words to his disciples before ascension all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything i have commanded you when church folk talk about stewardship in the giving sense usually they don't go to the great commission but this is the 
greatest calling of stewardship that the Lord has placed in your life. Now stick with me because when you read, wait, you know, and I don't know if you heard this in church, but it was always like, go preach, baptize, and you're like, okay, I got to become a pastor for this to happen. Friends, we get too granular when it comes to this is that the idea is that you and I are called to steward the gospel, the good news everywhere that we go. And that doesn't mean you have to keep your portable baptistry in the back of your Corolla to make sure that you can find a way to dunk anybody you come across. More so it is how and you and I are stewarding this transformational piece of information, this inspiration that the Lord has provided to humanity. I love that in the ultimate act of trust and stewardship of God to humanity, he, he gave 11 teenagers on top of the hill a chance to say, don't screw this up see in a few thousand years and yet today all over creation and for generations there are believers that it exists and today we are not the only christians who are gathering they're gathering all over the globe getting back however to this first idea then we're called to be stewards of the good news has that always worked out for us uh, the the wikipedia hyperlink would be crusades right it doesn't always work out sometimes people take a very good thing and they corrupt it and they steward it poorly more so our concern must be how are you stewarding well what god has given you and the crux of what kelly was interested because in, we're getting ready to start this study of first peter which is one of jesus's followers that we read about right all throughout the book of luke that we've looked at this last year it's like, okay, Jesus is like, here is your resource. Now go steward it well. What does that look like? And the same challenge that we're going to see that the first church had to do, the, from the book of Acts on to Revelation, is just how the first church stewards what God has given to them. The same challenge exists for you and I. How are we stewarding the good news? I'm not talking a tabulation of sermons preached and folks baptized, but how are you living this out? Kelly and I had a great experience this last week. We do our run club up at the brewery up here, and then afterwards we usually sit and try to figure out, you know, what the millennials and the Gen Zers say about life. Don't put periods, Rob, at the end of your texts. I've learned this because they think it's rage. They think it's old person rage. So just bad grammar and you're kind. That was for free. It had nothing to do with this sermon. But as we were sitting there, we saw a couple that has been in the community for 30 years, and we just started talking with them. And when we see them, and they are not followers of Jesus per se, but they're so kind to us, and we just have a great time communing and talking. And the one thing that I appreciate about what they've tried to do is they've tried to take who they are and steward it well in this community, in this neighborhood. For me, I'm like, oh, you are the picture of what Walnut Hills looks like, right? And then I'm talking, it's like, they've been here for 30 years, and Kel and I moved our family here almost 17 years ago now to raise this, and it's like, what does that look like? What does it look like to steward well in this? Man, I hope I've done it well. But let's go back. Why am I so angry? And why is the carpool the bane of my existence? I know you were dying to know, because I said, oh, it's about time allocation. But really, I gave you the functional structure of what a good theologian would say, is that this is the biblical principle. Because, Kendra, there's a thing such as righteous anger, right? So when the kids, you're like, I'm, I'm angry with you, and you're like, oh, no, I need to ask for the Lord's forgiveness. No, you could be righteous and justified in that act. 
especially if they're being these little hellions that they can be. God love them, but you have to enact the righteous anger upon them, right? So I could go back to the carpool line. I could be like, this is my righteous anger. I am correct in this. But usually, friends, what happens within this? The issue, the reason why I am so angry about this is because it is easier for me to identify the poor stewardship of others than to be introspective and see where I have failed, right? Like, I made this all about the carpool line. But man, if I was really being transparent here, I would tell you all the ways in which I have sucked at stewardship, all the ways where I have failed at that. That's why the teachings of Jesus have some help right there. When we're looking at our stewardship, I can't help but tie this into Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. Because the core principle of what Jesus is teaching right here is like, look, there are people who fail in this world. You're going to be able to see them. But before you go attacking them, the proverbial speck in your eye, make sure you remove the two by four from your own eye so that you can see clearly how you are causing that. And friends, that's the landing spot that I have for stewardship. I think we would all be better as a church if we took what resource we had and stewarded them well. But before I get into a line item by which you have failed in that endeavor, I need to go to the doctor, schedule my two-by-four removal surgery. It's like the new LASIK. And to be able to see clearly what this is. And the irony of this is what? What is the irony about this? I've always got a plank in my eye. They take one out, another one pops right in. It's like, it's the contacts of the world. And by the way, Gary has my notes. I did not write this metaphor down. It is not within this. This is on the fly. I'm telling you. What is the issue? The issue is just that my stewardship is never going to be as good as I believe it is. You and I, friends, need to steward our resources well. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. This is not a can I see your manager type of request. This is for you and I to be introspective and realize as stewards, friends, you're the manager. <laughs> what you're serving up. Let's be good stewards about that. Amen? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, Uh, Thank you for a scope and a view of what stewardship looks like. And Father, what I would pray for my sisters and brothers here today is that we all might not concentrate so much on the resources of others, the resources that we are dissatisfied with, that we might just be good stewards so that we can use what you have given us to the extent. Father, thanks for trusting us. I have no idea why you put your faith in humanity but help us be faithful and put our faith in you thank you for the opportunity at hand